Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, property and investment podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn, Anna-Claire Harper. Hi, and welcome to The Return, property and investment podcast. I'm Anna, and I'm delighted to be joined by Sadie Malin, who is head of ESG and legal at Moorfield Group, which is a leading specialist investor responsible for $3.9 billion of investments so far, and known as being at the forefront of alternative and operational real estate. So welcome to the podcast, Sadie, and thank you so much for joining me. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So we're going to talk about alternative real estate and how mega trends like ESG are affecting institutional investment with a particular focus on residential. But first, so that everybody is on the same page, can you just explain what investment managers like Moorfield actually do, whose money you allocate, what your role is and how you achieve the goals that you have? Cool. So... Firstly, we are a manager of discretionary funds that are largely made up of European, Asian, uh, US pension funds and endowment funds. And so essentially, we make up part of their macro real estate allocation. Our funds are mostly value add, which refers to the risk return profile that we'll expose our investors capital to. Value add is typically a 15% compounding annual return or 15% IRR. Uh, Or more simplistically, we're looking to make our investors about one5 times their money over a sort of five to eight year period. So what that means is that typically we've invested in sectors which are relatively nascent and involve an element of development risk, or we've followed strategies where we look to fix and reposition assets that are no longer fit for purpose for a number of reasons, be it occupier demand, ESG, etc. Historically, that's taken us into most sectors across uh, all of the real estate asset classes. I think we've probably been in everything over our 20, I think it's now 27 years of investing. But more recently, our investment strategies have focused really on what we refer to as the sort of the, the living and storage sectors. So living being beds, essentially, and storage sectors, which sort of span across alternative and traditional being kind of self-storage, open storage and logistics and sort of last mile logistics. Okay. I've been at Moorfield for a very long time, 16 years. And my role has sort of ebbed and flowed and changed and morphed uh, as the company's grown. But I've always been very heavily involved in our alternative assets, either on the transactional side or from an asset management perspective. That's really, really helpful. And to be honest, I sometimes find the terminology that we use in real estate and investment like a little bit bonkers. For example, describing UK residential or, you know, some version of beds, which is like eight times larger than UK commercial <laughs> property and four times larger than the FTSE 100. We describe that as alternative. What is actually meant by alternative and also operational real estate investments? Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, alternative real estate is now very mainstream, really, but the uh, terminology has pretty much stuck since it was first introduced. I think, you know, traditional real estate can be described as office industrial retail. And for many years, that was pretty much the mainstay of most commercial real estate investments. You know, these were the asset classes where landlords signed 15, 20 year leases and pretty much left the tenant up to it other than a quarterly rent check or a rent review or break. The term alternative assets was pretty much used in the early days as a wrapper for everything else. So now that captures PBSA, so that's purpose built student accommodation, built to rent, healthcare, hotels, 
single family homes, self-storage centres, data centres. Uh, and in the US in particular, a big sector of there is also medical offices. And a lot of these sectors are much more operational by merit of their occupier base. So many are direct let, customer service focused and require just far more active management. Sort of anecdote, but it was before my time, but when Moorfield first invested in the purpose-built student accommodation sector in the late 1990s, we had to actually operate it in-house because there were no established, you know, student operators other than I think Unite had come onto the scene but were operating their own stuff. And so we had people literally calling our office in Mayfair to speak to us about their children who couldn't find their room in their new Manchester scheme. <laughs> so, so very, very heavily operational. And uh, luckily, we there are now some excellent operators who operate a lot of these sectors for us. But I think it's very interesting because actually, in reality, all real estate now has become far more operational, including offices. You know, office leases are much shorter and companies and employers want amenity and services to help them with their own employee retention, etc. So really the term operational real estate and alternative real estate are kind of quite inaccurate now, I think, as a sort of differentiator from those traditional spaces. I actually think about it more as of the democratization of the real estate end user. So whereas sheds used to just be let to corporates, now people want to rent storage directly to run their own online business or their Instagram retail side hustle. And where offices used to be a full floor for a corporate, now some people want to rent by the desk. So really all real estate sectors have had to become just much more granular in their operations. But when it comes to the sort of UK residential rent sector in particular, it's definitely been one of the fastest growing emerging alternative sectors of late and and you're right it's a huge huge potential market I think over 1.7 trillion pounds is tied up in the UK buy to let market but it's nowhere you know it's not a fully institutionalized asset class by any stretch of the moment you know the vast majority of that's owned by small buy to let landlords with you know I've talked about this previously but with with less than five properties in their portfolio so and, and to give further context you know there is five million approximately 5 million renters in the UK and the built rent and purpose-built single-family homes for rent in this country that are institutionally owned about to less than 100,000 units. So a market with huge potential, but still actually quite small when it comes to commercial real estate investment with institutional investors, but heading only in one direction. Okay, so we could definitely say that although the wider sector is by no means small or alternative and it's pretty critical to daily life as we know it, as an institutional asset class, it's that we can still see, say, residential as a bit alternative and more operational than historically real estate has been. Yes, definitely. And, and you mentioned briefly there a bit about residential for rent. I guess that leads nicely on to the next question, which is what opportunities you're most excited about in alternative and operational real estate at the moment? Absolutely spot on. So, yeah, I think uh, residential for rent is going to continue to be one of the most interesting and dynamic sectors in the UK and, and, and actually across Europe, to be honest. Uh, it's more developed in some countries than others. Because if you look at the UK, just, just focus on the UK for now, but the undersupply of housing in the UK and the demographics of population growth, particularly in the 18 to 25 year olds looking forward for the next 10 years, and the fact that residential rents have typically tracked or outperformed wage inflation is going to make continue to make this a very attractive sector in the medium to long term. We have had the challenge of gilt yields rising. And, you know, given where they got to at one point, you know, it did give us it has given us reason to to pause in our deployment into this space. But the medium term outlook supports consistent rental growth. 
we invest across all areas of the residential for rent. So from PPSAs to single family homes. But one of our key strategies of our current fund is to try and combine the acquisition of newly built assets with a programmatic acquisition of existing flats and houses in locations that are fundamentally undersupplied. Because if you want to scale in this sector and you want the kind of scale that's been delivered in the US, for example, where there's a more mature rental market, it's hard to do it with just new build. Yeah. So we're combining the two to try and achieve a high quality portfolio that is actually you know, scalable in a short to medium term time period. Really helpful. And this is kind of on the theme of one of the topics that we have discussed at length offline. <laughs> and we've also talked a lot about how due to kind of standards and capabilities, institutions may well make for better property owners than the kind of traditional individual landlords we mentioned earlier who rent out properties, let's say, as a side hustle or something that they've ended up with because they have moved in with a partner and they've got a spare house and, they, and they've rented that one out. And in the in the English private landlord survey, 82% of landlords in the last one, 82% of landlords were described as owning fewer than five properties in their personal yeah. names. That is the bulk of the market. And the reasons why private individuals might struggle are really clear now. They just don't have the time or the money or the energy to manage the regulatory burden, to keep up with what is happening and changing in that market. What are the factors that give you confidence that institutions will be able to deliver better in the private rental sector than the more granular individual ownership? Yeah, I think anyone who's rented in the UK... I think has had to admit that they've had to make a significant compromise regarding the quality of the product they've ended up renting versus perhaps what they might have gone out looking for. The market is so undersupplied and we have that fundamental undersupply of housing in this country that properties, you sort of feel that properties don't need to be a high standard to rent. And yet rent is probably the highest single cost of living item in most people's household spend. You know, you, it was sort of boggles, my mind boggles at this, that you're spending such a huge amount of your money on this rental property. And the quality is quite often really poor. So, you know, there's not been a programmatic capex spend. It's it's poor quality. If it's furnished, the furnishings are poor quality. You don't get a very good service. You know, you don't really have a relationship with your landlord. You're reliant on the managing agents, whoever's been appointed or you're relying on the landlord if they haven't appointed a managing agent, which in my experience has been even worse. So I think professional investors have many motivations that actually that drive a much higher quality provision. So firstly, they have a, a long-term view as to how to maximize rent by keeping the quality of the product higher. So, you know, we look at CapEx spend, A, because we think there's a minimum standard asset should be, but also we, do, you know, we derive a higher rental income from higher quality products and we can take a longer term view on the value creation that that, um, that contributes to. And I think that quality of the product tracks through to other things. So, you know, EPCs has been a big topic, obviously, for residential for rent. And I think irrespective of where governments land on minimum energy efficient standards, uh, you know, institutional asset valuations require strong environmental credentials. So institutional investors will do the capex to improve EPCs because A, we'll think that we will eventually, I don't, I don't know if the market is quite there yet, but we'll start to see improvement in rent levels for higher, better efficiency in energy uh, performance from our assets. And secondly, because we know that the institutional investment audience values higher standards of efficiency than lower. And so therefore, there is going to be a valuation uplift for us. Secondly, there's a focus on brand and brand standards that matters to operators and investors of scale, looking to build a platform. Thirdly, I think institutional investors that can benefit from that scale can also invest in the tech and the operational expertise that you need to deliver high quality service. 
as well as product. And that's particularly in sort of when it comes to custom service and apps and smart energy meters, et cetera. And then I think lastly, and quite critically, institutional investors can guarantee long tenures for residents. Yeah. Whereas a private landlord, you know, a tenant is at the mercy of the landlord as to whether or not they want to possess the house themselves, redevelop it, sell it. Uh, whereas an institutional investor can offer a, a tenant a, a much longer trajectory and a much longer tenure because that product is is going to permanently be for rent. And I think some of this, that's a really helpful answer. Thank you. I think some of the kind of old way was essentially, right, you're, you have to pay rent in return for a property in a location. You basically get none of the, you don't get none of the kind of consumer focus, like you said, that you get another anything else that you spend money on or yeah. location 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 and it is really positive I think for the sector that, that that is changing and I guess institutional investors doing a better job like it's definitely something that I believe should happen um, and I'm sure you do as well uh, but it's by no means a given since you've been kind of allocating capital to an in inverted commas new residential strategies for a while now what advice could you offer to investors who are interested in exploring residential to rent real estate investments and in particular in residential with a sort of more of an ESG impact focus? Yeah so 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 number one certainly on the points I've just covered you know invest in your product and I don't just mean buy it you know invest in the quality of the product as a long-term and look at it as a long-term asset class mm. but I'm going to focus on the ESG question because I think there's one area that I feel quite evangelical about actually when I'm talking about this sector and that's the importance of remembering that if you're investing in this space you are investing in people's homes it's not just an asset class you know a ho- it's a home and a home is a fundamental necessity for people and families to thrive so there is a level of social responsibility attached to this asset class. And I think it's really imperative that investors have that at the forefront of their mind when they're looking at all of their service level provisions and then dealings with their customer base. And I think it's very important that professional investors and all investors in this space really embrace this aspect and ensure that they have compassion embedded into their policies and operations. It's the right thing to do, but also, it's essential to ensure that the institutionalization of this sector is seen positively by government yeah. and taken into consideration when they look at aspects such as rental reforms, the rental reforms that are in the pipeline, because any reform of this sector needs to encourage more investment or we're not going to solve the housing crisis. Yeah. And I think that's a really important balance. And I think it's really important that we as institutional and professional investors accept that challenge and therefore put in place the processes and policies to embrace it and demonstrate that we are responsible and we are the right people to be owning these assets and and looking after those people's homes. Yeah, excellent answer. Okay, and the private rental sector in the UK is at a time of rapid change at the moment. In the last couple of weeks, auction catalogues have been ballooning by, you know, five times in the face of higher costs of running, rental properties, more regulations and higher interest rates. And yesterday, at the time that we're recording this, we also had Rishi's big kind of row back Mm. on energy efficiency standards. What's your prediction for this niche in terms of how much and when institutional capital will really enter and what kind of returns will be achieved and what kind of impact? Yeah, I think so. So this sector, I look at this sector as it's it's a necessity driven sector. People have to live somewhere, right? So and it's increasingly undersupplied because A, you've got all these private landlords exiting the sector as as you were talking about earlier, regulatory costs, capex costs, etc. So it's fundamentally it's it's undersupplied. So and we're not building enough. 
you know, put that together. So you've got this necessity-driven sector undersupplied. So it is a resilient sector. It's more resilient than most. And we've got this inflation-link income stream, which is really appealing to people, particularly in this current inflationary environment that we've been but no sector is completely immune to the effects of significant outward movement in gilt yields, because that is a correlation that has existed for a long time in the real estate investment sector. So, as I mentioned earlier, we have shifted out our own yield requirements to reflect the current economic situation. But we just see these rental levels continuing to increase. So we've slowed while we wait for the market to catch up because the vast majority of the housing market is still owner occupied. So when we're out there looking to acquire single market units, single units on the market, there's a bit of a lag, to be honest, in the private seller's expectations of pricing. So we do have to wait while we wait for the market to catch up with the sort of pricing that an institutional buyer is willing to buy at. Yeah. So, so we do expect deployment in this space to slow while that pricing adjustment happens. That this, that's a very short term position that's not going to make a difference to the longer term inflow of capital that we see coming into this space. And also, we are now starting to see more stock coming out of house builders who can't sell at the moment where with mortgage rates where they're at. So, And, and they've got a more, more institutional, more professional kind of view of that pricing versus maybe a, a, a home purchaser, a single home purchaser. Mm-hmm. So I think there remains a really big investor appetite for this sector. And we're going to see increased focus in the long term. And I think in particularly from those US investors who've already got significant domestic exposure and want to expand overseas. From an impact perspective, you know, I think this is nothing but positive. It's going to just lead to a significant improvement in the rental experience in the UK. And ultimately, as I talked about earlier, that a faster decarbonisation of this sector um, as the landlords, um, the professional investors make those investments to improve the energy efficiency of the properties. So, and I think. You know, we've all read about how rental levels have gone up over the last year. I think it was 12% over the last year. So from our perspective, it is a strategy that we can, by being selective, deliver value-add returns where assets are repositioned. It's going to be a very consistent performing kind of core plus product in the UK, I think. Super interesting. Okay. And how does ESG integration differ in, let's say, industrial real estate that we talked about earlier versus residential, maybe specifically private rental sector, which obviously has different, slightly different dynamics. So for example, social housing or whatever. Yeah, interesting, very interesting question. I think on the environmental side, it's not as different as you might think, perhaps. So we have a net zero carbon policy. We're targeting all of our assets to be operationally net zero carbon by 2030. And we're applying that across all of our strategies. And really, when you boil it down, it's fantastically simple. We need to make our assets as energy efficient as possible. We need to remove reliance on gas across all of our assets. And ultimately, we then need to embrace on-site renewable energy. So usually the easiest way to do that is through PV panels. It gets a little bit more complicated if you've got more sort of bigger assets where perhaps you can't do all of that through PV panels. And I think some of the tech still needs to catch up a bit, all the air source, heat pumps, et cetera, kind of needs to catch up a bit with buildings that aren't necessarily fit for purpose to work with that type of technology there's definitely more complexity in refurbishing existing homes so for example you know we have victorian terrace properties but the process and the end goal is still the same so i think there's it's very similar i think the process of achieving it is just a little bit different but then of course as i mentioned there is this unique social element that i think applies far less differently when it comes to other asset classes so when we're looking at our social goals across other sectors they really are very different it's according to what sector and 
the housing is is the one where the social impact is a very large piece of the ESG story, whereas perhaps in a, a logistics shed, it's a very small part of the story. There's maybe a few bit of employment and you might look at the effects on the local community and stuff of the construction and all that, but actually it's not the same. You can't really compare that to the social benefit of when you're, or the social aspect when you're looking at someone's home. Oh, okay. Can you share some examples of what we would describe alternative real estate projects that Moorfields have invested yeah. in, incorporated ESG as inspiration? Yeah, I mean, like I said, it's reasonably consistent across all of our asset classes, but let me pick out one from each side of that storage and living. So I guess on our, so we invest in self-storage assets. And I think that's quite a good example because it includes new build assets also with refurbishment of slightly older stock or change of use of sheds, for example, into self-storage units. And all of the assets, so our strategy there is that all of our assets need to be a minimum EPCB. And so far, we've rolled out PV panels across all of the operation assets. And so everything that we've built from new has achieved an EPCA. And everything that we own already that was a C or a B, we've been able to materially improve all of the EPCs by putting those PV panels on site. And then we also have a commitment where we only buy all of the landlords procured energy is all green energy. So we are already pretty much net zero across that asset class or close to it which is fantastic great yeah on the the resi side i've talked about the improvements we make on the energy side but um, let me talk about our responsible landlord code of conduct which going back to my earlier point is that sort of voluntary code that we've put in place across all of our residential threat assets and that really is a policy that enshrines that compassion that i mentioned earlier so ensuring that we are again it's not very complicated it's ensuring that we're providing and our operators or anyone who's working on our residential rent assets ensuring that we're providing maximum communication and assistance to any residents who might be experiencing some financial hardship and struggling to pay their bills so it includes things like obligations to help try and find alternative housing additional time beyond what statute the statute might say you need to provide before you start eviction proceeds processes and it also includes a a rent caps so we look at rent caps to make sure that actually our tenants who are signing up to longer term commitments just have a bit more visibility over where their rental levels can go because obviously this inflationary environment has has led to some pretty big shifts for people alongside you know a cost of living crisis and all other sorts of spaces as well so I think that's the best sort of social social policy I think that I could give you because we've actually seen it you know We've seen it in action, really making a difference. That's such a good example. And I was thinking earlier, and I guess I've probably mentioned it on the podcast before, but like one of my biggest bugbears in the kind of professional real estate investment sphere is like, we have a systematic lack of empathy in real estate. And the only way that like bigger companies and bigger investors are able to empathize is if someone that they know has been through an experience. And that's like, for example, a within tenancy significant you know 20% rise in rent like that is really really difficult to live with or to budget for and to cope with so having those kind of policies seems like a really 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 valuable addition and I guess part of your core product and final question then are there any common pitfalls or misconceptions that other investors who are coming in should avoid in this space and by this space I guess I mean residential rent really and kind of ESG investment in general 
Yeah, maybe I'll start off actually broadening that to sort of the alternatives because going back to that original where we started off talking about the kind of the operational complexity because yeah, all alternatives and resi for rent is probably the most extreme of this are very specialised areas in terms of their operations and many require certain scale to operate efficiently. And I think in the early days, we certainly have made, you know, we've certainly made some mistakes that we've learned from. So I think my advice would be to look at ways to get into these alternative sectors and particularly residential for rent with really experienced operators or managers alongside you. A really good example of how that can play out is to look at, you know, the increasing role that tech is playing in the operations of all aspects of real estate, including ESG. And you need partners with some scale so that they have invested in that tech because it's real estate has changed phenomenally over the last 10 years. I think, you know, I think ESG has been a very big disruptor, but I also just think that tech and that data capture and you need scale to have data or you need a partner with scale to have that data and to be able to invest in that tech to make sure that you are really you really understand your market because it's going to be quite hard to compete with other people who have all of that at their disposal if you're just investing in a smaller scale and you know that's one of the advantages the institutional investors like us will benefit from okay very helpful and if listeners want to find out more about you or Moorfield or get in touch what's the best way for them to do that well you can find me on linkedin so always happy for people to connect me on that. Or if anyone wants to hear a bit more about Moorfield, our website is www.moorfield.com. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining. No, thank you so much, Anna. That was great. Really enjoyed that. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.